Hi and welcome to Marking the Roll, a podcast for teachers. Uh, we're based in Australia, in the Illawarra, but this is really for teachers everywhere. Last episode was on teacher training and didn't we have some feedback to that one? We interviewed lecturers, we interviewed the Dean from the University of Wollongong and we interviewed some students and wouldn't universities hate this comment? Just really disappointing that it just seems that university is so far removed from what teachers are experiencing in a day-to-day classroom. Yet, as we found out in that episode, universities aren't responsible for the content that they teach in teacher training courses. The accreditation bodies, the standards authorities, are the ones who are responsible. Now, it's up to the universities to start pushing the viewpoint and pushing the issue that the content is not suiting the profession. We can't just have this exist forever. Universities must stand up for themselves and say, if we're going to have students that go out with real skills, that can go into the classroom and make a difference, we have to not just teach all of this theory, all of this ideology. We have to teach real skills. So it's up to the universities to force the change. But it's also up to potential students for teacher training to do their research. The first bit of research is how quickly will I go out into a school to do some practice teaching? Because you really should be going out in the first year and hopefully within the first term of your teacher training course. Then your question is how often will we go out? And the more the better. The more you go out for practice teaching, the better your experience and your skills will be. The next question is to go to, or the next thing you should do is go to Facebook, look up some of the student groups from different universities, join them and ask them for their realistic opinion as to what the teacher training is like. It's up to you, the potential student, to do your research in whatever way you can to find out if this course is a dud because it's so theory-based and ideology-based, or whether it does have some real skills that can be imparted. Another issue that came out from last episode is that the more degrees that you do, they don't necessarily equip you to do the job or to get a better job. For example, a student did a Master's of Education and it seems that principals don't really care about that. They care about the experiences that you've had and what you can bring to the school. And finally, we looked at the idea of a reduced teacher training course from four years down to two years with an extra one year full apprenticeship in a school uh, being mentored by either the one or two teachers. Um, This would solve the teacher shortage. Uh, It would also get the young teachers out into schools quicker and getting real life experiences quicker. But of course, some of the theory and some of the ideology might have to be dumped from those courses, which I'll say again, um, are controlled by the accreditation authorities in each state, New South Wales, NISA, Queensland, Queensland Standards Authority, and of course, AITSL, the Australian Standards Authority. This week, we're looking at technology. And I think many people would think, oh, this is going to be boring. Well, I tell you what, it's not. It's 
pretty exciting for me. I found that there is a, a branch of this educational technology which I had no idea about. Um, and you'll have to wait till the last third to hear about that. Now, for the sake of this episode, educational technology is not going to be the hardware. It's not going to be the iPads and the, the laptops and the, and the smart boards. We're not going to be talking about that. I'll be talking about the actual learning platforms that exist for uh, infants, for primary school, for secondary schools. And to begin the discussion, I spoke to Anne Rea, a secondary school language teacher who described herself as an early adopter. I'm a secondary school languages teacher. I consider myself a pretty early adopter of technology. How do you decide what technology you will use and what you will you know what's not useful to you what's what are your criteria the criteria that's a great question because there is so much out there i guess that's the balance between student engagement and you know them actually learning something like having address a learning outcome that you know is specific to that topic you know that lesson so you look at the the um, the outcomes of what's needed for that particular uh, level. Um, you look at the NESA outcomes or the Australian standards, mm-hmm. um, and see if the the program that someone is trying to sell you in on, no doubt, will will, will cover those bases. For example, there are many free and some that are paid. Um, so I utilize a combination so at a school level we engaged education perfect which is a new zealand based company that i was probably one of the first in the school to adopt that and at just for one subject it was quite expensive um but i really felt like it was they could adapt they were very very amenable to looking at the textbook that Honestly, I was not too, I'm not too interested in textbooks, but they do give you a guide and give you some activities I think that are, you know, can, can be adapted and, you know, um, integrated into the technology. Now, did you, did you have to um, talk to them and say, look, this is what I want to do, this is the level of my students, and did they make adjustments for you? No, they just said... I think it was more what textbook are you using? We can put the modules, um, you know, very basic, like perhaps a vocabulary list, things like that, that then can be gamified somewhat in um, Education Perfect. But I I guess the real gold is where you get... um, you know, your statistics and your some data that, okay, this student is going really well, we can extend them, or this student needs a little bit more time on that, um, that vocab before they can move on. So you would use it not just uh, for learning, but for assessment? Look, probably formative assessment, not summative. Um, They do absolutely have summative assessment, but I just, with all of the differentiation that is required in the classroom, I don't think it's a really great measure of what, you know, students... I I just don't think it's fair um, to have 
technology-based um, sole assessment for the summative assessment. So great, great for formative and really great um, immediate feedback for students and great immediate feedback for the teacher. You know, I said to the school, look, I really love this. Um, can I have it for the following year? And so they sort of looked at more. We had it for English. We had it for science. And again, it's not, you can't solely rely on Education Perfect. You can't solely rely on a textbook. It's like this combination of things that um, might suit. So it's a tool that you'll use in your, your teaching toolbox, but, but to use it all the time, I guess the students would get very tired of it. Definitely, they do. They need, just like in life, you know, they're very, they, they want variety. So you cannot, it's great for things like perhaps flipping the classroom where you might say do that activity at home and so it's kind of pre-learning for the next class. Do, do your students use their own device or a school device? They use their own devices. So that how yeah. often <laughs> how often do you find them diverting off track and going onto TikTok when they should be on your language program? Yeah, very often. Um, what Education Perfect has, and I actually display it on, you know, the monitor or whatever display you know, screen I have in the classroom, uh, it shows who's offline, who's on task, how long they've been off task for. It'll say, you know, Hannah's been off task for two minutes. So if they are on a different tab and they're not on the activity, you know, it, it will show. So I often say, oh, Hannah, you know, how's it going? Um, look up here. It seem, you seem to be off. Um, you know, are, are you doing the actual? It, it also gives you a percentage of um, like the what completed. So they might be 50% through, et cetera. So you can have a look at that and go, okay, Sarah, I need to get another her on to the next thing because she's really speeding through this. But often when I go to Hannah and say, look, you know, it looks like you're not on the correct activity. Yes, I am, miss. And then you go over and sure enough, she's actually not. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I think um, that I used to use Socrative. I still do occasionally and, and have that on the screen and do the same where other students can see who's lagging behind or who's not even doing it. Yeah, and I think that's good to keep them accountable because it's so they're so quick at flicking off the screen um, you know, obviously that option is not available. We use the Google platform. And so if you're on a Google Doc or something, you know, they will inevitably flick off to something else. Well, by their own device, that could be their own phone, I suppose. Is that right? Do you, can they use their own phones? We, we have a no phone policy. Um, however, from this term, they need to have them in their lockers because we've just had too many pardon me too many issues yes and that that is a real problem because as soon as they go off task in a, in, a, in, a, in a neuroscience way their brain electricity goes up and then you've got to get them back down into the focus area um so look i'm not a fan of mobile phones in classrooms 
at all. In saying that, the way that Apple is set up, they just get their messages on their laptop. And so they could be messaging someone else in class and, you know, I haven't got my phone, miss, but, you know, they are off task. So um, so, so you use Education Perfect. How, what are some other programs that you've encountered? Well, uh, interestingly, I'm actually doing some postgraduate studies in learning design. As far as school, I think anything that's gamified, Quizlet, um, quizzes, and they're not specific to languages, but um, you you get a lot of data, and I think that's what you know. To, to a lot of teachers, oh, I'm you know sick of data. I'm sick of data, but. At the same time, it does give you an idea of, you know, the strongest students and the ones who you need to support more. Um, so that's not a bad thing, I don't think. Um, what works for one class may not work for another. I mean, the great thing about a lot of these, this technology is I can adapt it, do it at a higher level, higher order thinking, or I can scaffold it for you know, those who have learning support. But before we go on, I'll make it clear that Education Perfect did not sponsor this episode. There's no advertising in it. I've never used them. But they're one of the few edtech companies that got back to me in time um, to have their voice heard in this episode. So the idea, according to Anne Rayer, is to um, not overdo it, to select the subjects or the topics that you need the help with and make sure that the edtech company is flexible and that it can target different levels um, of your classroom because no classroom uh, is homogenous. Now, in doing my research for this episode, I went to New South Wales Department of Education site where they had a whole lot of edtech companies. I went through probably 70% of them. Most of them didn't have a phone number, and when I did contact them, they didn't get back to me. For some of them, if they did have a phone number, I rung them up and it rung out, or uh, Telstra or Optus said that they no longer existed. So it's clear that out of those hundreds of edtech companies on government websites, uh, a lot of them have just simply gone bust. Um, I did manage, though, to speak to someone from Education Perfect, because that um, is the company that, that Anne Rea mentioned. I thought I'd give them a call. I spoke to Michael Porteous, the business development manager, and asked him exactly what it was that Education Perfect did. Yeah, sure. So Education Perfect is a fully online um, learning platform. So it specializes in content and assessments. So there's lessons, assessments, huge amounts of data that it provides from student interaction. So it's really designed to engage students and give teachers the sort of power that they need to understand where students are at and uh, be able to modify the content to suit their uh, school's needs as well. So very much about online delivery of those uh, lessons and assessment, whether it's in the classroom or at home, wherever they need it. So, Michael, does a teacher have to choose or does a school have to choose all the subjects that they offer or can teachers say, look, I'd like to use that for maths only or I'd like to use that for languages only? 
Uh, yeah, so we do a whole range of different subject areas. Some uh, tech companies just do one, but we cover sort of English, maths, science, languages, digital technology, history, geography, a whole range. So uh, schools can yeah usually choose to say, hey, we just want one subject or two subjects, or they might get a bundle with you know all the subjects, um, and that can also be by year group or for the whole school. So we're fairly flexible on that. And um, are these subjects aligned to the Australian Education Standards or the NESA Standards? Yes, they are. So everything we have in there, we've got a content team that aligns it to the standards authorities. So each uh, state has their own sort of template that we imprint on the school uh, account. So when the teachers go in, they'll see the New South Wales, the Victorian, Australian curriculum, and it's all mapped out to to those as well. Okay, so... So just basically students use a device, either a laptop or an iPad or something like that, um, and they'll go through certain lessons. Is that correct? And the teacher will then get evaluations and how indication as to how the student's going. Yeah, so the students can either go in themselves and do this, but um, knowing students, that's fairly rare. So it's really about uh, empowering the teachers to set those lessons and then the students know it's something they need to do. So the students can go in on their own, but teachers will usually set a lesson or an assessment or a group of lessons uh, to the students based on what they really want to cover. So whether that's the homework activity or um, an in-class activity if they have devices, uh, depending on the school, or as a flipped learning activity if they want to do it before they come to class. So that way the student, uh, sorry, the teacher has full control about what the student's going to do and then they can make sure that the students are doing that work, they're engaged with that work, and they get an idea of an understanding the students have of that topic. Um, the you use it where it actually makes the most impact, but where students don't come out of a class saying they really love science or maths or English because of the platform, they say they love it because that teacher was awesome. Is there such a thing as a trial period? I know, for example, this podcast with all the platforms that we went through trial periods to see how, how it all worked. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think most tech companies these days online uh, do trials. Uh, maybe not all the time, but most of the time, I'm I'm very happy to run trials with school. Teachers um, are no longer faced with just one mainstream class and a very homogenous lot of students. They have a great variety of students in their class, um, abilities, language, um, neuro difference. I suppose you could call it that. Does your sort of platform cope with that? In other words, are there levels within levels that teachers can activate? Uh, yeah, definitely. That's a major uh, issue. You've got, you know, you may have a selective school where all the kids are doing great, but most schools you're going to have a massive variety of different students and they can't stream them into different areas. So um, the way that the Education Perfect platform works is you can easily differentiate lessons. So you can either will either supply lessons that are differentiated already or they can be modified so you can take a base lesson and make a, a simpler one or a more advanced one and you don't need to set things to one class you can decide exactly which students they go to so that you can you can make sure that they're all getting the right lesson for the right level um, the other way that it kind of works is you can set assessments and you get all the data from that um, but to help with that personalization it will actually recommend the lessons where the students are weakest and that's another level of uh, differentiation and, and personalization that hits where the students need the most help rather than a blanket kind of offering one teacher i spoke to talked about the um the importance of a phone number to be able to actually speak to a consultant from the education tech company um 
Do you find that important? Because teachers are communicators and to be able to just ring up and talk to someone about a certain problem is pretty important. Do you find that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, as I was saying, there's no silver bullet for technology. So we, we have support teams that work by email to help with the basic things, but there's plenty of times, I mean, my number is out there for, for many, many, many teachers now. <laughs> they can always give me a call and we've got a team of teacher consultants who are there to help with the training. We find the most difficult thing is to get time with teachers to help them with the platform because they're so busy. So when they call, we're actually delighted because it usually means that we're actually going to do something to help them. Now, just 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 finally, Michael, um, imagine there's a school that has no educational tech. They've been thinking about doing this. They have a couple of new young staff members on the staff. They want to actually introduce something. What should a school first look for? What, what would the reluctant school uh, most likely look for? So, I mean, I, I'd start from what the, the goals of the school actually are. I think a lot of schools do look into these without really understanding what their own goals in particular are. That's the first question we ask. What are you trying to achieve? Um, so I think that they really need to know what they are trying to achieve with the technology or what they're trying to achieve in general with uh, education. What is their school context? Where are they trying? So quite often they simply come and they say, this looks great. Can we can we have a go? And that's fine too. Um, but really the process of understanding what are you trying to achieve so that at the end of a year, they can assess, hey, has this worked? Uh, has this not worked? Indeed. I suppose if it's not working, you go to another provider or you just go back to the textbook. That was Michael Porteous, Business Development Manager from Education Perfect. Now, I say again that this episode is not sponsored by Education Perfect at all. And after the brain break, uh, I'll be talking to someone from an education company that will really surprise you. Some of you will love it. And some of you will think that this is the end of the world. Here's the brain break from Illawarra hip-hop artist Sludgeface. You were trying your best, I shouldn't blame you so much. It's like the older I get, the more I know what it was. Sometimes I'm happy right here, sometimes I long for a home. I can't keep judging your ways.
Every time I try to fall asleep, yeah, make me come back to me. Yeah, trying to live life flawlessly, switch back to reality. Now I overthink, trying to do this right. So you get angry, don't wanna start a fight. Yeah, this choice gon' hurt when the day turns night. Guess we all make mistakes, and it's all just life. But I don't wanna be myself, myself. I should open up, get some help, yeah. But when I tell someone about the mental health, it just bring me down more. Oh well, like I don't wanna put this on my friends. I should really be honest, but I pretend. Yeah, imagine if your best friend came up and said, "Sometimes Mistakes I hate who my own. I can't let slide. Mistakes of my own." That was Sludgeface, that's the name he goes by, a rapper, hip-hop artist from the Illawarra. And you can find his stuff on Spotify or anywhere you get your music. I like that slow tone. Um, he's, a, he's a rapper, but he's not really. It's There's something else. I really like that stuff. Now, I promised you um, I'd talk to someone from an education tech company that would really amaze you. I managed to speak to Ian Fagan from a company called Skodell, and rather than me explain it, I'll let him explain it for you. Skodell is a well-being uh, check-in platform. Our aim with Skodell is to equip students with the skills to make each emotion work for them rather than against them, and we see that as being fundamental to leading a mentally healthy life, is that ability to start making each emotion work for you because a lot of mental health is a, is an emotion that gets stuck. And how we do that with Skodal is first by helping kids label their emotions accurately. And then we have a range of resources for them to access based on their responses to support them in, in managing that, those emotions and the reasons behind those emotions. And then we provide optics to the school to play a supporting role. This is something that the students get used to, to doing um, before they would seek help from the school. Is that right? Exactly. So if we look at the progression of wellbeing models in schools, the effect sizes from research that was published by Acer showed that there was pretty minimal impact on wellbeing. Um, and more recently, there's this view of if everyone can start to look after their own wellbeing, we ideally will start to see less uh, demand for those services for at-risk students who are getting more at the front end than uh, than a reactive uh, type of approach. So it's actually making the individual student more responsible for their well-being and giving them the tools in order to cope with or address whatever is going on in their life. Does it get down to that sort of detail? Yes, it does. Um, and... If we really want to improve well-being, it needs to be everyone's business. And a big part of that is starting to empower students to actually take ownership of their own well-being. And that, of course, then frees up um, teacher time uh, to 
you know, play a supporting role through the conversations that they have, but ultimately it, it's the student that's really leading their well-being journey, and I think that's that's where you get the biggest well-being gains. How do you confront the privacy issues that now exist with educational technology? This, I mean, they're you know getting maths wrong, and that's one issue. But this is relating to real human. Uh, needs. How do you address that privacy issue? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, obviously, from a technical standpoint, there's a number of things that you need to do to ensure that you're going above and beyond from a best practice standpoint to secure that information. And that might mean in Australia, uh, certain hosting, so it's been hosted here in Australia, the different protocols that you have in place um, to protect it, what happens if there is a breach. Um, so all of that is uh, giving education confidence that you're you're doing your utmost to protect that data then i think there's the non-technical aspect of communicating that internally so that people feel confident around they know where their data is going um so that's saying okay as a teacher i'm checking in with you um and i'll see this and be able to support you and if it's done anonymously then explaining that and so there's different ways it can be set up and we make sure that there's communication support to, um, you know, to communicate that throughout the school so that everyone knows what's going on with the data and, and how it's been used and its intended purpose as well. What's been the response, you know, from the educational bureaucracy? What's, how, how have they regarded it? If I can look at it across different sectors, I think it, it, it probably gets a little more challenging across government departments. Um, there's we we work with the Victorian um, state government, and understandably, in that at, at that system level, there's definitely a few more things that you need to cross-check around your system from a technical standpoint, um, uh, as opposed to within the private and independent um, system. Certainly, still very top of mind, of course. But I think uh, there's just a little more opportunity to trial things without needing to go right to the top, which can be can be challenging in the in the government departments. What about responses from parents? Because it could well be that a student um, through your um, your app is actually expressing concerns that the parents don't know about. How how you know what's what's the method of dealing with that? That again comes down mostly to communication. So communication out to the parents so that they're aware of what's going on and its intended purposes. What we've seen in terms of the response from parents has been largely positive in that they're appreciative of the school for implementing something like this and doing their their utmost to give students a a safe and comfortable outlet to share things start being proactive about their own well-being and working on that as a as a focus um we've only really had one or two parents that have felt a bit apprehensive about what's going on with the data and in those instances it's an opt-out um approach with with an adult and a psychologist that psychologist um, maintains confidentiality, um, sensitivity, and um, uh, the security of the information that you share with that psychologist. Um, I imagine that students may sometimes share things that they don't want 
um, certain bodies to to discover. How do you get across that? Yeah, that's that's definitely right. And there's different anonymity settings and also explanation within the app around who's seeing this. Um, we try and empower the students as much as possible around that, uh, so that they they know who the data who their response who's going to see their responses, um, and it can be run anonymously uh, if if they'd like to to do that as well. The other part to that is trust is such an important part of the teacher student relationship, and if students do share that they're having some difficulties at home with their parents. Uh, the, the teacher sh can can ask the student, you know, are you comfortable with me sharing this or talking about that as a first port of call? And that's all it, all it requires, I guess, rather than potentially you know, breaking that trust uh, to, to share that with the parents. You're probably aware of the case in the USA where there was um, a young fellow about year eight um, at a school and he was transitioning. He wanted to transition from... Um, male to female and he under, started to undergo the, the social transitioning and um, the school knew about it but the parents didn't. So I'm not sure whether he was sharing this in a, in a well-being um, yeah, environment but the parents didn't know and that, that caused a big issue in the States. Yeah, um, I can imagine that, that would and uh what I've seen across high school to junior school is that in junior school, there's much more of the parent communication. Uh, and then in high school, it's almost as if let's now distance the parents as part of this development for, for students or kids to start becoming a little more independent. And perhaps at times it's um, maybe there's there's need to involve the parents a little more uh, still in the high school level um, in, in some cases, I think. Uh, so certainly a noticeable difference between high school and junior school in that parent communication piece. Uh, I'm uh, just taught in the, in the tertiary sector up till about uh, three years ago and student wellbeing really started to come in to its own and often it was closely linked with the student experience, which was sport, which was, you know, learning to surf and all of those things that students like to do. So there was well-being, there was student experience. And that then linked in with student satisfaction. Now, I, I think a common question is, is experience and well-being and satisfaction in education taking over from academic quality? So if you see that the experience on one side versus the learning on the other side, has the lever gone a little bit too far? What do you think? Well, what we do know is that <clears throat> new learning and emotions are processed in the same part of the brain. So if we are anxious, we have a really hard time absorbing new learning. And there's been a rise in anxiety and obviously that starts to impact um, students' ability to learn. And so when we're able to get the, the well-being side of things right, there's strong research to suggest that it improves the academic outcomes as well. But I certainly take your point around this. It, you know, it can't be disruptive, too disruptive to the learning. And I think an example of that is a check-in platform 
many schools look at and think we need to do we need to check in daily weekly we we are exponents of the idea that it's light touch high impact and so you check in two to three times a term um, and the check-in isn't necessarily for teachers to get data although that is a, a good benefit of it it's actually for the student to have a couple minutes to reflect on their emotions and start to understand more about themselves and learn about how to use those emotions effectively. Have you had any experiences where the the wellness data starts to excuse academic performance? For example, um, a student not being able to submit an assignment um, because of the wellness data, so therefore they're excused from doing that. Is that the sort of thing that might occur? That hasn't, from my knowledge. Um, um, haven't heard of that from schools. You're far, far more likely going to experience that in the tertiary sector. I know that um, when I was in the university sector, that did occur, that wellness issues were an excuse for not you know, non-submission or late submission and um, sure, seventy percent of it was correct, but thirty percent of it was simply an excuse. So, um, Ian, have have you considered going to the different state departments of education and insisting that all teachers use this platform, so that the emotional state of teachers can be fed back to the departments? Now, there's something we 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 have. We're looking. We're in discussions with a, a group of schools, actually, in. Uh, Hong Kong, actually, and a group of international schools. And they're starting with, uh, they're looking to start with the teachers. And the reason for that is obviously if the teacher, well, teachers don't feel like their well-being supported, then it's it's harder to promote well-being to students. Um, and so, uh, <clears throat> you know, that being a really important piece. And so that was the, the first case of, well, we're going to start with teachers and then essentially roll it out um, from there rather than looking at it from students and then going to teachers. Wow, it's a brave new world, isn't it? That was Ian Fagan from Scodell, a student wellness edutech company. It, it makes you wonder how long it will be before we're calling students customers and not students at all. Um it seems to be that's what's starting to happen. This episode has been on educational technology and certainly not the iPads and the laptops and all that sort of hardware stuff. If you didn't have your eyes opened with Education Perfect and Michael Porteous, I can pretty much guarantee you did have your eyes opened with Ian Fagan from Scodell. Marking the Roll is a completely volunteer organisation. No one is paid. We don't make any money, but we would like to cover costs. So if you're feeling just a little bit rich, we'd love you to buy us a $5 cup of coffee by going to the Buy Us a Coffee um, icon or tab on our website. Just go to markingtheroll.com.au. You can also become a member uh, for 20 bucks a year. Or your school can even become a member um, as, a, as a school member where you get to have your choir or orchestra or band or whatever uh, do the brain break and be heard around the world. Um, my name's Phil Dye. Next week's episode is on becoming permanent. In Australia, we have a casualisation of the teaching workforce 
uh, and many are on temporary contracts, which means they can't get home loans and feel a sense of security. So we're going to look at why that is uh, and how it can be changed. Hopefully you've enjoyed this uh, episode on educational technology and you'll be listening in next episode. See you then. 